I'm willing to guess that many of you have a good lost and found story. You know when you, you lose something of value and you are just frantically searching everywhere for it and you search and search and search and then finally you find it and it's just this glorious moment? One of the best seek and find stories I've ever heard was from one of our elders at the church we were at previously in Nevada. And he tells a story like this. He said they were married for about 25 years at the time, he and his wife. And so they decided, hey, let's go to Hawaii to celebrate our anniversary. Let's go on this trip. And so they do, and they just have a ball. They go with several other friends, and they have a good time sightseeing all over the island. And it's just a good time. They're at a beach resort. They go in the ocean. They go swimming. And so they get back to the hotel room, and he's washing his hands, and he looks down, and his wedding ring is gone. And panic sets in, partly because the missus will be extremely upset, but mostly because in 25 years of marriage, he had never once lost his ring. He hardly ever took it off. And so he's freaking out, thinking, what do I do now? So he starts backtracking in his mind. He starts recalling, okay, where, where did we go? Where, where could we have been that it fell off? And then it dawns on him, it's in the ocean. I had it before the ocean. I didn't have it after it's in there somewhere. And so he and the others, they scope out and search the beach. And, and the beachfront property is like hundreds of yards long. And so they're just looking through the sand, looking to the beach. They're looking in the water where they were. He doesn't even remember where they were. And they're just frantically searching for it. And then, all of a sudden, he finds nothing. And so, after two or three hours of searching... He's in despair. He's desperate. He feels despondent, discouraged. Gets back to his hotel room. They're going to fly out the next day. And he prays a prayer of desperation. And he prays, Lord, please help me seek and find this ring. I know it's a material thing. But it is a token of the covenant commitment of marriage that I have with my wife, and it's significant to me. And if it's significant to me, it's significant to you because 1 Peter 5, 7 says, cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. So if it's valuable to me, it's valuable to you. It's significant to me, it's significant to you. Please help me find it. And he can't sleep that night. He's just discouraged, and so the next morning he thinks, you know what, let me try one more time. He goes back to the beach, and he's combing through the beach, same area, and it just seems like a frivolous pursuit. I mean, most likely, the ring fell off, the tide got it and pulled it into the ocean, it's gone. And as he's thinking that, as he's praying, he sees in the corner of his eye, out of his peripheral, a little, little shimmering, a little glimmer of light. He goes, no, that, surely not, that can't be. I mean, that happened yesterday and it ended up being pebbles and seashells or pop can tabs, and so he goes over to where it is, and he reaches into the sand, pulls out his hand, and there is his wedding ring sitting on a rock. Now, how incredible is that? Think of the statistical improbability. That is astronomical. How in the world? You tell me, is our God good? Oh, and God is saying, okay, it is significant to you. It's significant to me. I, want you to, I wanted you to seek and find that ring. How much more do you think God wants us to seek and find him, his presence, which is infinitely more valuable than silver or gold? The whole point this morning is this. God desires that we seek him. 
God desires that we seek him. Pretty short, simple, yet incredibly profound and powerful truth. So turn to 2 Chronicles 14. 2 Chronicles 14, it's in the Old Testament, it's kind of in the middle. You can follow on the screens. In the Old Testament, we see that God showed special favor to this group of people called the Israelites. And he declared them as his people, and he redeemed them. He rescued them out of slavery from Egypt, gives them freedom, gives them identity, but alas, sin was still embedded in their hearts. So they rebel against God. They pursue and follow after worship false gods, false idols, thinking that joy, contentment, fulfillment will be found in these other things. So they seek after these other things instead of God. And this disregard of God leads people to destruction. It did back then and it still does today. When you forsake God, only death and destruction ensue. And sure enough, civil war breaks out among the Israelites. God's people are divided into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom called Israel and the southern kingdom called Judah. And First and Second Chronicles is a compilation of stories from Israel's history demonstrating its need for a messianic king. Israel's leaders, as you read this, and Judah's leaders keep failing over and over and over. And you read this, and you get the sense that maybe the only true leadership that works is God. Maybe he is to be king. However, in order for that to work, the people must seek him and follow him through faith. In fact, the phrase, seek the Lord, is found more often in First and Second Chronicles than any other book of the Bible. So we're going to look at one king in particular, the tragedy of King Asa. Look at chapter 14. Asa takes over as king from his father Abijah. And it says in verse 2, Asa did what was good and right in the eyes of the Lord his God. Notice that he is referred to, God is referred to as the Lord his God. This wasn't merely the faith of his parents. He wasn't born into a religion. The Lord was his God. And of all things in this world that could have his allegiance, possessions, power, prestige, popularity, any other P word you want to use, God was his ultimate main priority. And we see that in the next few verses. Asa demonstrates his allegiance to God. It says that he destroys the idols in the land that people were worshiping. See, their hearts were being drawn away from the Lord as they worshiped these false gods. And so Asa removes them from the land. It says that Asa commands the people to seek the Lord and follow him. And for the first 10 years of his reign, there is no war. The land was at rest. And God grants him peace. During that time, he builds up cities, he assembles a large army of 580,000 soldiers, and God prospers his kingdom. And you might be thinking, well, of course then he would seek God. It's easy to seek God when things are good. It's easy to seek God when things are prosperous. Well, hold on now. Look at verse 9. There's this war general named Zerah the Ethiopian. And Zerah is a bad mamma jamma. I mean, he comes against Judah with an army of one million warriors. Listen, the U.S. military is one of the largest in the world, and right now we have a number of active duty troops of 1.3 
million. So you think about the entire U.S. military coming against these people, that would be terrifying. And not only that, it says that they had 300 chariots. Chariots back then were like having tanks. I mean, you could just annihilate people. And so they have a million soldiers, 300 chariots, and a Saw's army, no chariots, although large, only has half the number of that. The odds are clearly stacked against them. Now, normally, most people would cower under those circumstances. I mean, every one of us, we'd be shaking in our boots. Verse 10, look at this. So King Asa goes out to meet Zerah. And his army is lined up against Zerah and against this one, one million man strong, massive army. And they're facing each other in the field of battle. I think of like Braveheart or you know, any Civil War movie or any movie from a war period earlier where you have armies that face each other shoulder to shoulder as a show of force. They're just lining up against each other before they do battle trying to intimidate the others. I've never been in that situation, clearly. But I have played the game Red Rover. <laughs> you remember Red Rover? Right? Red Rover, Red Rover, send Jared right over. You always choose the weak link. So here's how, if you're not familiar with it, here's the game. Kids don't really play it a lot nowadays, probably because teeth were knocked out and concussions ensued. But anyway, you have two teams lined up against each other. They're facing each other right? And they're holding hands and they're making a chain link with their team. And so what they'll do is Red Rover, Red Rover, send so-and-so right over. And you go running full speed as hard as you can trying to break through that chain. You try to run through so that they're no longer holding hands. And if you do that, you're victorious. You get to take one person from their team and bring them over to your team. Well, I remember playing this as a kid and I'm looking at the other team. They're dominating I mean dominating. I, I look at them and they appear to me like, it's like 20 varsity linemen, 300 pounds each. At least that's how it seemed. And I look at my team and it's me and a guy who's like 80 pounds soaking wet. And I'm like, oh, this is not looking good. Things are desperate. You'd be intimidated, right? Asah, by all means, should be intimidated. He looks at their side, he looks at his side, and he enters into one of the greatest mindsets you can possibly have as a follower of the Lord. He gets desperate. Desperation is a powerful motivator to seek the Lord. I mean, think about it. When you've hit rock bottom, you have nowhere to look but up. And too often we bemoan difficult circumstances rather than rejoicing in the opportunity that they present to seek the Lord. Discomfort and desperation drop us to our knees in humility. Right now as we speak, one of our mission teams, our go trips, is at Dominican Republic. It's our Verge student trip. In fact, they get back late tonight. And they've just had an awesome time, but they've gone through obstacle after obstacle, and God has provided, and they've done some incredible ministry. It's been really good. So a week ago yesterday, they took off, and listen, I'm not a morning person, like, at all, and they, the flight was leaving at 8.45, and so they met here at this campus at 4 in the morning, and I'm like, all right, I guess I can show up and encourage them and pray over them, so I think I woke up at like 3.59, <laughs> I got here as soon as I could, and the team's getting ready, and they're all excited. They have their bags, and they're loading up. Everything's excited, and we pray together, and we notice that there's a team member missing. In fact, it's one of the leaders. 
And so I call her up and I say, hey, uh, what's, what's going on? Are, are you on your way? I mean, 30 minutes have passed. It's like 4.30. I'm like, are you on your way? She's weeping on the other end. And she says, I'm not going to make it. She says, it's a long story, but my passport is locked up in a building, and they don't open up until 8 a.m. Now, let's do the math. Okay? She's in Maryville. They're leaving from Chicago O'Hare at 8.45. 8 o'clock to 8.45. What's the fastest you can get from Maryville to O'Hare? Like, an hour tops in perfect traffic. And so I'm like, uh, you know what? Let's just pray. It's fine. Let's pray. God will provide. We'll figure something out. But meanwhile, I'm freaking out like, she's not going to make it. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm calling the airline like, can you get her on a later flight? And come to find out, they can't for like three days probably. And they were booked solid. And even then, it would be on first class, which would be expensive. Probably awesome for her. But... <laughs> They can't get her on a flight anytime soon. She'd miss most of the trip. And so we're just figuring out what to do. And I said, let's pray. So I pray with her, pray with the team. The, the leaders are praying. They, they go ahead and go on to the airport. And I, I tell the other leaders, hey, keep praying with the students. Keep praying. Let's just see what God does. But I'm, I'm thinking, no way, no way. Seven o'clock in the morning, I get a text that says, I got it. What do I do? So I call her up. I said, you get to the airport. You have your husband drive you like he's Mario Andretti. <laughs> I realize some of you are law enforcement. <laughs> a pastor telling a member to speed. Let, okay, that's a moral quandary for a sermon for another time. But, I, <laughs> so I say, you get to the airport as fast as you can. And even then, I'm like, ah, she'll get there maybe at 8 in the morning, maybe. And, you know, international flights close the gate at, what, 30, 45 minutes before the flight? And so everything would have to be perfect. So, Sure enough, she gets there right at 8 in the morning. She runs in. She gets her bag checked, goes to security, and there's no one at security. Miracle of miracles at O'Hare on a Saturday morning at 8 a.m. There's no one in security line. So she flies through security, runs through the terminal, gets to the gate as they're closing the door. Now, you tell me, in the Lord good? Is the Lord good if she didn't make her flight? He doesn't have to answer our prayer requests, and sometimes he doesn't in the way we expect. Certainly not always in the timing that we expect. But in desperation, we are to seek him. That's why I love mission trips. Mission trips are powerful because they yank you out of your comfort zone. And so my question for you, I'm sure many of you are in a desperation moment right now. Maybe a desperation season. What's your desperation moment? Maybe it's joblessness. You've been looking for a job for months, years, nothing doing. Maybe it's broken families. Your marriage is on the rocks. You have a wayward son or daughter. And it's just gripping your heart. Maybe it's loneliness, childlessness, persecution. Maybe your friends, coworkers are making fun of you for your faith. Maybe it's health issues, yours or someone else's. Maybe you're in a spiritual desert. Maybe you just feel like your prayers are bouncing off the walls. Like you are seeking God and you just don't feel, you feel nothing in the, Worship time we just had, you feel nothing. You're in a spiritual desert. By the way, the, the psalm we read earlier, Psalm 63 says, earnestly I seek you in a dry and thirsty land. That's the best time to seek him, when it's dry and thirsty. Maybe it's the death of a loved one. What's your desperation moment right now? In Asa's desperation, what does he do? He seeks the Lord and cries out to him. Look at verse 11. This is his prayer. He says, O Lord, there is 
none like you to help. Between the mighty and the weak, help us, O Lord, our God, for we rely on you. You know what humility is? Humility is a genuine understanding of stature that leads you to submission. So when you are humble, when you're experiencing humility, you understand how mighty and awesome God is, that there is nothing outside his realm of possibility. And simultaneously, you understand how weak and frail and dependent and reliant we are. It's a difference in stature that is infinite. You know when your, your child is afraid of bugs? What do you tell them? Or maybe your spouse, that'd be funny. <laughs> when they see a spider or something, what do you say? Listen, it's more afraid of you than you are of it. Is that true? I don't know. It better be. <laughs> I mean, a little spider, if it comes at me, you know, bowing up, dead, right? It better have a genuine understanding of the stature between a human and a bug. Folks, we got to have in humility a genuine understanding that God is God and we are not. So cry out to God, who can compare to you? Who can help me more than you can? And Asa acknowledges there is no one like our God. So why bother going to anyone else? There's this sense of helplessness that we need in our prayers. You know what the shortest, verse, shortest prayer in the Bible is? Matthew 14, 30? It's three words. What are they? Anybody know? Lord, save me. The context is Jesus is walking on water, which is incredible. And he's approaching his disciples. They think it's a ghost. They realize it's Jesus. And Peter says, hey, that looks cool. <laughs> hey, Jesus, if this is you, would you just call me to come to you on the water? And Jesus says, come on. And so Peter, I mean, how audacious is that request, right? Peter gets out of the boat and walks on water. This doesn't happen every day. You're not going to see this at the lake baptism next week. Peter's walking on water, and as he's approaching Jesus, taking his focus all on Jesus, he takes his focus off of him, doubt starts to creep in, and he begins to sink, and he prays a prayer of desperation because he's drowning. You can't be more desperate than when you're drowning. He says, Lord, save me! And Jesus reaches out and grabs him and pulls him up. Desperation. When you seek the Lord, be desperate. Be desperate. There is no pride in desperation. We approach God's throne of grace and humility completely relying on him. And this is what happens with King Asa. He also prays, as you continue in verse 11, in your name we have come against this multitude. In other words, in your name, for your reputation, for your glory, Lord, we are stepping out in faith for you. When you seek the Lord, not only be desperate, but be deflective. Deflect glory back to God. It is not for your glory. It is not for your reputation. It is not for your comfort, for your praise, for your honor. It is all about Jesus. It's all about him. It's all about the Lord. So be desperate. Be deflective. Finally, he wraps up his prayer. He says, O Lord, you are our God. Let not man prevail against you. When you're a kid and you're in the cafeteria, in the lunchroom, Let's say a bully comes up to you and pushes you. You drop your lunch tray. You're like, hey, what are you going to do at that moment? I'll tell you what I would do. I would find my strongest, beefiest, muscle-bound friend, and I would go to him and I'd say, hey, see that kid over there? He pushed us. 
us, really? Did he push us? No. But I'm getting him involved in the fight. I'm standing behind him saying, hey, go get him. He pushed us. And so then he'll stand up and go, he pushed us? Nobody pushes us. And he gets in the fight. Notice how Asa made this God's fight. He says, Lord, you are God. Let not man prevail against you. This is for your glory. And we are your people. So appeal to God's strength. Identify yourself as belonging to him. Because then the fight is the Lord's, and he fights for those who belong to him. So when you seek the Lord, be desperate, be deflective, but third, be defended. Look look at the result in verses 12 through 15. God completely defeats their enemies before them, and he receives all the glory. Well, some time passes, and we get to chapter 15. God sends a prophet named Azariah to Asa, and it says in verse 2, The Lord is with you while you are with him. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. God tells the people, if you seek him, he will be found by you. Literally in the Hebrew, it would be worded like this. If you seek him, he will let himself be found by you. God allows himself to be found by us. We have a father who hears us when we cry to him. We have a father who wants us to seek his presence. Listen, one of the the greatest moments of my day, every day when I come home from work, I'll be driving in the car, pulling up the driveway, open up the garage door, I pull up into the garage, and I think our four-year-old daughter hears that and comes running. She hears the garage door opening. So I, I pull in, get out of the car, I walk into the house, and as I open the door, there's... Genevieve going, Daddy! And she runs up to me and she just grabs me around the legs and squeezes me so tight and I hug her and it's this awesome moment that for those of you with kids, I assume last until what, 17, 18? I don't know how long they do this. <laughs> and so I'm just hugging her, we're embracing one another and it's awesome. I, I, I look forward to that moment every day because my daughter is seeking me. She is seeking My presence, wanting to be near to me, and I am available to her. I am near to her. Church, do you think God, our Father, delights when we seek him? Not a rhetorical question. Yes or no? Oh, yes, a thousand times yes. The God of the universe who created billions of galaxies, each with billions of stars, is near to us. Be in awe of that fact. He is available to us. In fact, when you seek the Lord, remember this, he is always there. He's always there. That is a promise. Claim it. Take it to the bank. His nearness and availability is a beautiful promise that we should never, ever forget. Unless you think that this is the only passage that has this notion, check this out. Old Testament and New Testament, James 4, 8, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Jeremiah 29, 13, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. Proverbs 8, 17, those who seek me diligently find me. Deuteronomy 4, 29, you will seek the Lord your God and you will find him if you search after him with all your heart and with all your soul. Luke 11, 9 and 10, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks it will be opened. I could go over and over through passages all throughout scripture. We would be here all day because God desires that we seek him. Why? 
Why is he available to us? Why is he near to us? Why does God make himself so readily available to us? I think it's because of this. His presence, his nearness to us is the greatest thing we can possibly have. We were created to seek and know him. So what does it mean to seek the Lord above all else? It's to be consumed with knowing him more. It's to be obsessed with knowing Jesus more. Whatever happened to the Jesus freaks? Remember that term back in the 60s, 70s, and 80s? It it actually initially was a term of derision. It was a term of persecution. People would see someone living radically, boldly for Jesus and be like, that guy, that gal is such a Jesus freak. And then it kind of morphed into a, a badge of honor. It became a term of endearment, a Jesus freak. So much so that, remember the band DC Talk <laughs> in the 90s? What would people think? If they hear that I'm a Jesus freak. What would people do if they find out it's true? What happened to the Jesus freaks? What happened to those who passionately pursue him? That's what it means to seek the Lord. Not passively pursue him. Passion- you can't passively pursue God. You passionately pursue him. So seeking the Lord is actively striving to know him more. There's an effort, there's action, there's striving in it, labor in it. Seek the Lord even when you don't feel like it, especially when you don't feel like it. Don't be a spiritual bump on a log, a spiritual couch potato. Ask God to help you in this effort to seek him, and he will help you because he wants you to seek him. Look at verse 7 of chapter 15 here. God says, but you... Take courage. Do not let your hands be weak, for your work shall be rewarded. He says, take courage. Do not let your hands sink. That's literally what it says in the Hebrew. It's a Hebrew euphemism, meaning don't lose heart. Take courage. Trust in the Lord. If you do not give up seeking the Lord, the reward will be the result of your work. There is a striving involved in seeking God. But, listen to me, it is a grace-driven, spirit-empowered striving that we cannot do on our own. This week, it was mentioned earlier, was Vacation Bible School at this campus, and also at Cedar Lake. By the way, pray for HP and the Gary campuses who are doing VBS this week. And the theme was treasure hunt, all about actually seeking, finding the Lord, knowing him, making him, or valuing him as our ultimate treasure. So Monday, we go to pick up our daughter, our four-year-old, and we go to her class, and she's like, Daddy, let me show you something. She made this craft in the class. It was a little treasure chest made of cardboard, and all around it was little jewels bedazzled there, glue, glitter, all this. And then she opens it up. She says, check this out. Inside are more jewels. And then there's a little yellow cross. And she goes, Daddy, she holds it up. Did you know that Jesus is our ultimate treasure I'm just like, do you want the keys to the car? Here you go. (laughs) I'm like, yes, I do know that. Do you know that? How is it that a four-year-old can begin to understand that Jesus is our ultimate treasure, but we as adults forget that fact? He's awesome, is he not? He's so good. He's so ultimate. He's so perfect. He's so beautiful. He is our treasure Jesus says that in Matthew 13, 44, he says the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. A man finds it, covers it up, and then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. He's like, I don't care what I have, I'm going to sell it all because this treasure I found in the field is so worth it. 
It far surpasses the worth of anything else I have. We moved here uh, early last year from Nevada, northern Nevada, actually. And in northern Nevada, it's one of the largest gold mining producing areas in the world. So I learned a lot about gold mining. It is a long, expensive, intricate process. These mining companies spend millions of dollars to extract just a little bit of gold. And if you watch Discovery Channel, like, you know, these shows, Gold Rush, American Gold, Gold Ice Road Truckers, I don't know. <laughs> you, see, you see that these, these guys spend tens of thousands of dollars of their own money. And blood, sweat, tears, time, resources, effort, all to extract a little gold. Why would they do that? Why so much effort? Well, five years ago, the price of gold was almost $2,000 an ounce. I don't have gold fillings, but if I did, I'd be popping them suckers out and going to the pawn shop. Why would they spend so much effort in extracting gold? Because the value of the treasure is greater than the work required to obtain it. And God is saying, seek me. I'm right here, and I'm valuable, and I am the ultimate treasure. So Asa hears these words to seek the Lord, and it's, look at verse 8, as soon as he heard these words, immediately. There's no hesitation in his obedience. He follows through. Look at verse 8. It says he took courage, and he demolishes the detestable idols in the land. He restores the altar of the Lord so they could return to worshiping the true God. Verses 9 and 10, he gathers all the people together to rally them to repent and return to God. Verses 11 and 12, they sacrifice to the Lord a huge sacrifice. They have this incredible worship service, and all the people enter into a covenant to seek the Lord with all their heart and with all their soul. And probably the craziest thing is verse 16. Asa removes his mother as queen. He dethrones his own mom because she's following other gods. Whew, that is cold-blooded. How would you like to have that conversation? Hey, mom, I love you. You know I love you, right? And thank you for loving me, for raising me, but uh, here's the thing. You know we're following God now, right? We're following the Lord and him alone, and I, I caught you worshiping these other gods, so uh, yeah, you're fired. What? That's a bold move. Someone who's willing to fire their mom, their heart belongs to God. He is wholly devoted to God here. Verse 18, it says that he takes valuable sacred offerings of silver and gold, to, gives it to the Lord to contribute to the temple. Wealth was nothing compared to his consuming zeal and passion for the Lord. Matthew 6, 21, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So we see in verse 15 of chapter 15, it says, All Judah rejoiced over the oath, for they had sworn with all their heart and had sought him with their whole desire, and he was found by them. And the Lord gave them rest all around. We get down to verse 19, and there was no more war. Let's pray. No, we can't pray! Because this sermon, the message, the story doesn't end there. Oh, how I wish it did. I wish the story ended there. Some of you are already leaving. Come back, come back. <laughs> the story ended there. It doesn't end there. Sadly, it goes on. This isn't, remember, the triumph of King Asah. It's what? The tragedy of King Asah. There's this pesky little word in verse 19. What is it? And there was no more war until... Why, King Asa? Why? 
No more war until the 35th year of Asa's reign. What happens? Well, look in chapter 16. The nation of Israel, this army led by the king of Israel, Baasha, comes against King Asa and Judah, and he builds this blockade. He begins building a blockade. It's an act of war. It's a siege against Judah. Now, remember, Asa faced a million-man army. This was not as big, big of an obstacle, and so surely now he would seek the Lord, right? Well, wrong. Instead of seeking God, he seeks help from man. He places his confidence in others over God, and the way he does that is atrocious. He actually takes the silver and gold that he donated, that he gave to the temple of God, and he robs God of that silver and gold and uses it to bribe the king of Syria to come to his aid. Self-reliance is one of the most heinous sins. Put it this way, seeking the Lord is stifled by self-reliance. Don't rely on yourself. How often we make decisions without consulting the Lord. How often we seek others first. How often we seek comfort. If desperation is necessary to grow our faith, comfort is the antithesis. And so God sends a prophet again to Asa, not to encourage him, but to rebuke him. Chapter 16, look at verse 7. At that time, Hanani, the seer, came to Asa, king of Judah, and said to him, Because you relied on the king of Syria and did not rely on the Lord your God, the army of the king of Syria has escaped you. Were not the Ethiopians and the Libyans a huge army with which they had many chariots and horsemen, and yet you relied on the Lord? He gave them into your hand. Listen to this. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the earth, to give strong support to those whose hearts are blameless toward him. Meaning, God is seeking those who are seeking him. And then it says, you have done foolishly in this, for from now on you will have wars. God says, you relied on man, not on me. What happened? When a great army came against you, too numerous to count, and far too great for you to defeat, you sought me. You relied on me, but now you foolishly relied on others. Well, surely now Asa will repent. He will once again seek God, right? Sadly, no. This godly rebuke enrages Asa. It says that he puts that prophet in prison, puts him in the stocks. He's even cruel to his own people. What happened? What happened? Asa, his heart belonged to God, and, and now he's completely turned against him. I think he got comfortable. He stopped seeking the Lord. He began relying on himself and others instead so badly that, look at verse 12. In the 39th year of the reign of Asa, he got a disease in his feet. And his disease became severe. He, even in his disease, did not seek the Lord but sought help only from physicians. There's nothing wrong with medicine, seeking physicians, but he didn't seek the Lord at all. Asa gets this disease in his foot, a severe, life-threatening disease. And you know, generally people seek the Lord when they're in dire health because they have nowhere else to go. Who else are you going to go to? I can't control my own health. I can't heal a disease myself. So surely now he would seek the Lord again, right? Again, sadly, no. Even in his disease, he refuses to seek the Lord and cry out to him, and it literally kills him. Think you're either seeking the Lord or you're drifting. 
Philippians 3, 13 and 14 are the words of Paul. This is one of my, Philippians 3 is one of my favorite passages in all the Bible. Listen to this. The Apostle Paul says, Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul is consumed with knowing Jesus more. He says, forget what happened in the past, forget the obstacles, forget the barriers, forget what's all around, I'm gonna focus solely on Jesus. He becomes my singular focus and I'm gonna press on, I'm gonna strive, I'm gonna push forward to know him and seek him more. Folks, that's a Jesus freak right there. Oh, may that be our pursuit. Now, you might hear this and be tempted to think, well, I guess I need to try harder on my own effort, my own strength to be a good person and to seek the Lord. No, no, no. Genuine faith in Christ will always endure to the end. You know why? Because even a good king like Asa will fail. But there is one king who is worthy of your trust and he will never fail. We seek him, but he seeks us. He pursues us passionately. And he knows that we will fall on our own to seek him. And so he empowers us with the Holy Spirit. He says, I want you to seek me so badly, I'm going to empower you with this grace-driven, spirit-empowered effort, and we're going to do this together. I want you to seek me, and when you seek me, you will find me. We cannot seek the Lord in our own wisdom, our own strength, our own effort. We must rely on him. Remembering this promise, God desires that we seek him.